Brian, what's your cereal today? Um, it's like what's blueberry hemp, <laughs> granola, and oat milk. Very LA. Oh yeah. What's your cereal right? today? I love the question. <laughs> and we're in our thirties. Hi, what's your cereal today? <laughs> mm, Brian, yum. What's, your, what's your milk alternative of choice? <laughs> milk. Yeah, oh, I mean the the correct answer is oat milk, but it's, no. But the thing is, my milk. my my alternative of choice for meat uh, for for milk is milk. You, I, you almost you said your alternative choice for milk diet. is meat, which I think also <laughs> makes yeah. sense for you. Have you ever wondered why it is that we do what we do and who we do it with? Then this is a podcast for you, an exploration of human beings through systemic psychology and Unani biotypes with Rodrigo Garcia Plates, Ross Everett, and Brian McElhaney. This is Biotypical. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Biotypical live recording. As you know, every month or two, we usually open the recording for the whole episode or most of the episode here on our Instagram page, too. Beautiful. All right. Long time coming. This is our listener questions episode for the month of January slash December. So we've got a lot. Um, <laughs> thank you to our patrons over at patreon.com slash RGP development, um, where uh, you guys can join us live for these. And once a month, we do something that's open to uh, uh, the listener question patrons. And you guys have submitted some amazing questions. Those watching on Instagram right now, uh, you're welcome to watch, but because it's been two months, we are going to focus solely on the patron questions for this one. Uh, we've, I'm glad Charlie is here because both Charlie and, um, sorry, I've, I saw pictures of Warren Buffett's body on my screen. We were trying to <laughs> like always, every, every Thursday morning. We Look, really need to talk about this, Ross. My, it's my vision boarding is my business, okay? So... <laughs> Um, and I want a physique like Warren Buffett. So okay. you got it. I got it. That's, I, that's what you want from Warren Buffett's life is physique. Yeah, I want Warren Buffett's physique, and I want George Clooney's financial advice. Well, that's probably that pretty one. good. Yeah. That's still fun. Yeah. All right. So. Um, oh my god. First question is: What biotype is Paul Rudd? Oh my no, god. No, no, no. <laughs> If we get that um, question again, I swear. No, here we go. Um, I'll, I'll read the question. What is the psychology behind the middle child syndrome? Does being a middle child default you to carrying a systemic pattern and effort to fit into the system? Also, I had a double movement across the RGP grid to become a fake fire promoter. Could that have been for me becoming the middle child twice? My mother having a third child with another man and my father having a third child with another woman seven years later. Wow. Middle I child. Think we need to have her and talk about this because that's like, there's a lot to unpack there. Dania, come off mute and we'll see if maybe one of our microphones can project it onto Instagram. I can yell if that helps too. Yeah, I think yeah, just yell, yell your questions. And as for everyone, please yell your questions. Yeah. <laughs> just scream at us. Um, I've just been uh, thinking a lot about personal development and things like that, and um, listening to the systemic psychology podcast. Previous episodes, um, mm -hmm. middle children kind of get glossed over. So <laughs> I was wondering if there was a correlation between being the middle child and having that kind of feeling of 
not being seen and actually not being seen as a middle child or developing a personality where I feel the need to be seen a promoter or a controller. Wow. I mean, first, that's a really good question. A, lo a lot has been written about the middle child and the whole syndrome and how it works. I don't agree with most of it, but there are two very interesting theories. Um, the first one is like a really mechanical one. This is purely behavioral and it makes total sense. And it has a lot to do with the interests of, of men and women uh, in general. Like, I think we've talked about this before, but... Um, Let's put two theories together. First, uh, we know Jordan Peterson speaks a lot about this, but we know that men are more interested in things and the doing and women are more interested in relationships and the being. That's why women are just more profound when it comes to understanding other human beings. And men can be more obsessive in, in making something mechanical happen technologically wise. We're not saying that men cannot be like, like women, very feminine, and that women cannot be very masculine. Uh, but if you, if you chart out statistically the interests of most, of most people, uh, men are more interested in things, women are more interested in people. Now, having said that, usually the oldest child uh is is becoming more savvy in how the world works how to react to different situations how to handle things mechanically in a better way and whoever is the most masculine between them the parents is going to feel more attracted to that human being it's going to feel more attracted to that kid because that kid is getting it about life and now i can have deep conversations about how the world works and and fix stuff with them and and ask them to do certain things that now they can do because of their maturity and their ability to take action so usually the most masculine parent will fall in love with the oldest child and their ability to face the world in that sense on the other side um, whoever is the most feminine side uh, of the parents will feel extremely attracted to the baby because that baby needs unconditional love and requires attention like crazy and is not independent at all and doesn't know how to do anything and requires uh, a very intense connection with one of the parents. Like I, I see it with my kid now. I love my baby, but I don't have this profound connection that my wife has with the baby right now because the baby is extremely demanding and I want him to do stuff and he doesn't, he doesn't do that much yet. <laughs> so usually the most feminine side will pay really close attention to the younger child. Uh, and then who's, who's, whoever's in, who's ever in the middle <laughs> will not get a lot of attention because the oldest one is the most masculine, the youngest one is the most feminine, and who takes care of the one in the middle. That's why wise grandparents and wise uncles and aunts usually pay really close attention to the one in the middle, knowing that they have no edge as to get the protection and the love from the parents that other people in different levels of the family usually get. So mechanically, that's the understanding. Now, Germanic medicine, believe it or not, I don't believe I'm quoting Germanic medicine here, but Germanic medicine says that the firstborn child is there um, to fix the problems of the, of the father's family. They say the secondborn child uh, is, is there uh, to fix the problems of the mother's family and that the third one is free. Therefore, the oldest one will become part of the fight, the youngest one will be free and funny, and the one in the middle is trying to give attention to the family in the background that no one's paying attention to. 
like uh forget about the 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 like the father's family and the mother's family let's just put it this way that was the such first a huge eye roll dania that was amazing <laughs> <laughs> they say in germanic medicine that the second the second born usually the middle child will start trying to fix things and pay attention uh, attention to stuff within the systemic loyalties of the family that no one else is paying attention to so what usually happens is they start pointing out stuff that other other people in the family just don't agree with and they seem weird and they seem confused and they seem from a different family and paying attention to different stuff and affected by different things that that the rest of the family just never even notices forget about addressing them they just never even notice them so then we start treating the middle child as someone who's weird in another reality that doesn't really want to belong to the system and just wants to prove everybody wrong out of resentment and they usually end up trying to grow in a different direction away from their family because no one seems to understand them and get them does that make sense yeah <laughs> of course yeah it makes sense yeah i love how so yeah, every time we, that, we explain yeah. exactly every time we explain something to her it's like Ugh, I hate that I have this answer now. <laughs> no, because like I wanted to know it, but then you told me, and it's like shit. Now there's work to do. <laughs> yeah, come to BYB. We've got a BYB starting in a week. You know what's funny? Every time I come on the podcast, I just get broker and broker. Like I just quit my full time <laughs> job, so I'm very broke right now. <laughs> but I've, it has it. It's on my. It's actually on my vision board to go. So I'm gonna right next make to it Warren easier. Buffett's top right, of the body. I right by yeah, shirtless yeah. Warren Buffett. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so does that mean that the middle child would carry the symptom or the pattern? Well, if it comes to systemic loyalties usually the middle child carries the symptom and, and removes himself from the system and allows someone else to shine and find finds their own way to support others outside the family and gets a little bit of acknowledgement from people outside the family, rarely from people within the family. But the grandparents, I love my grandparents. I do. Yeah. That they're was the, interesting. They're the ones that usually try and pay attention to the middle child. That's why big families need to have like, and by big families, I mean, I mean, with at least three children or more, they need to have an extended family. They really do because mm. the parents just don't, don't have the ability to be as present as they need to be with more than two kids. That's why raising children used to be a community thing. And now we made it at such a private event that we're, we're paying the price for it. Mm. So made so much of our, yeah. Our lives are private event now. It's very and interesting. It, went from, it yeah. takes a village to raise a child to it takes a village to mind your own damn business. <laughs> That's a bumper sticker. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember in in ethnologia, the the study of different uh, like ethnic groups and how culturally they understand everything. One of the most interesting things that we found is that in many cultures. Uh, we're talking about when we were nomads, but uh, like I don't know a thousand years ago. But in many cultures. Once a woman in, in a group got uh, pregnant, then every guy in the tribe would start having sex with her because they were convinced that the belly was growing because they were all contributing to the creation of the baby. And then when the baby was born, every man in the village felt like that kid was theirs because they contributed to it. So that kid was going to have like, I don't know, 20 or 30 dads and all the women could, would get involved too. So it was like a cultural trick that we did in order to raise and protect the children. 
<laughs> Are you just thinking about? And you're suggesting we go back to that, Ro? Yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> what was the, the takeaway? <laughs> Because I'm the only woman present, and that's, you know. Yeah, I'm not sure. <laughs> what are you trying to say? Yeah. That sounded like a proposal. <laughs> I'm missing a different proposal first, bro. Sorry. <laughs> it does sound exhausting. So what? back to Jess's question about twins. So how, what, how would that work with the oldest, youngest twin, and then a third child after that? Does the middle child there take on oldest to youngest or are they technically the middle child? If you have twins and then a kid, there is no middle child. And if okay. you have an, an older child and then twins, you have no middle child. But who suffers usually there is the one that's not a twin. Because twins are so interesting and, and they, they're so funny and you get like the best of both worlds because you can love them and if you hate them there's another one that looks exactly the same that you can start connecting to so usually the one that pays the price is a sibling of the twins because there's nothing that sibling can do to be as funny as interesting as everything else as, as the twins so usually that one pays the price this is why ron weasley was so frustrated all the time oh, you're true <laughs> breaking down really trickling in that knowledge from the harry potter <laughs> you're going through. i'm rereading the series and uh, it's all i can think about right now. you really are yeah i'm in the middle and one of my friends has a theory that the four uh houses where you sort people in are based on different uh sibling like the oldest sibling middle sibling youngest sibling and only sibling like recreate kind of like the four different oh um, the slytherin would which be one's like slytherin I'm not sure. I think it's either only or oldest. I think maybe Gryffindor was oldest. Maybe oh, really? Gryffindor was I think, only. I think they're yeah, based I, on, I can't remember what they said. I think they're based on biotypes and personalities. <laughs> yeah, they definitely are. If you think 100%. About would you put, well, yeah. so I've been thinking about this because I would put, if we were going to do the Harry Potter houses as the different personalities, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, biotypes. I've been thinking about this, the different houses for. Uh, the biotypes, Cholerics are absolutely Slytherin, Ravenclaw, yes. absolutely Melancholics. I would put yeah. Hufflepuff as promoter. Yes. So then you Griffin, think they're the... Like, because, but Gryffindor is another weird but one. Gryffindor is dominant. No, they're dominant. absolutely dominant. Yeah, they're promoter uh, for I, sure. I, I don't, I don't know the houses that well, but what yeah. I would, th what the I would think is kind of like the bravery one. That does seem like it would go with the promoter. Yeah, I think the, the fun, like you know, like easygoing, goofy element of, I guess I did just say easygoing to describe Hufflepuff. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the huge, the huge problem with Harry Potter is that there's not a lot of sanguine characters. I'm okay with it. <laughs> and, and that's how Brian stopped being her friend. <laughs> the, the sanguines, I think, in Harry Potter are in Slytherin. They're like the goons. They're Malfoy's goons. Oh, they're Crab and Goyle. Yeah. Oh, that's terrible. That's a terrible depiction. But those two are fake fires. That's why they're part of Slytherin. <laughs> really? Dude, what kind of a person follows this mini choleric boy, uh, like trying to live their life a little bit? But no yeah. sanguine would do that. Like the, the, he, Malfoy would hate his goons, but they're fake fires, so it works. <laughs> would a supporting sanguine do that? 
I don't think so, because a supporting sanguine would stand before him at some point and go like, what are you doing? Like, they actually do have the strength and they care about people as much as a phlegmatic. They would go like, what the hell are we doing? Brian, as you do the read-through, see if you can report back on any potential sanguines. We need to know. <laughs> we gotta get I'll let you know. Sanguine I will let uh, you know. Hagrid? <laughs> Harry Potter. Hagrid, Hagrid is probably the only sanguine. <laughs> a thousand percent Hagrid. And he's yeah. very sanguine. I love him so much. <laughs> All right. Dania, thank you for the question. We're going to move on to the next question now. Thanks, Dania. Love you, Dania. Bye. Conquered the middle child question. All right. Next question coming from Sonny. What are the advantages of knowing one significant other's core belief? And once you've realized what it is, do you mention it to them? Or is it something that they should find out on their own? Oh, a a I think there is question. a million advantages of knowing it for sure. But well, let's, yeah, go over, uh, let's define for our listening audience what a core belief is. Yes. Okay. This is, this is actually really cool. So um, every time we're explaining the, the, the philosophy that we use uh, in RGP development to work with couples, we explain how the most important thing is distinguishing if, if you're in a relationship based on, on trauma compatibility, which is what most people are in. Like I find someone whose masks trigger my trauma, that makes my mask thicker, and my mask triggers their trauma, which makes their mask thicker, and we both stay in this relationship with something called a fake egoic promise, which is your ego promising that... Um, you're not in this relationship because of the suffering that you're used to trying to recre recreate it like your childhood with someone else, which is why Freud, Freud would say that when we fall in love, if we were completely honest, we should tell, tell people, um, so are you going to give me what my parents never did? Uh, because that would be probably the most honest thing we can say. Now, the thing is we teach people uh, in our couples curriculum and when we do couple sessions, um, we, we teach people what they're what their main core belief is and and how to read the core belief of your partner so that you stop triggering each other and you actually learn how to protect each other from the pain that that creates now having said that what is a core belief we all know what a limiting belief is uh the first distinction that we need to make here for people to really get it is um read ortega y gasset uh read ideas versus beliefs by ortega y gasset uh, the Spanish philosopher. And he would say that the huge difference between ideas and beliefs is my ideas are mine. I own them. I'm aware of them. And if someone challenges them, I don't take it that personally because it, it was just an idea. But beliefs are completely subconscious to us. Uh, we cannot see them. We don't know that we have them. We just follow them like the Bible. We follow them like it's absolutely true. Now, there is subconscious to us because we actually created them as part of a normalizing process of the pain that we were going through. Events don't cause pain themselves. Events are neutral. But when we experience pain, pain requires all of your attention. And we don't like to feel that, that, that lost control in our life. We, we, we don't like to feel like we're not on top of everything and that we don't know how to react. And when you're experiencing pain, it requires all of your attention. You cannot feel pain and be in control at the same time. Therefore, 
if you if you experience something if you go through an event that's very confusing and maybe you felt pain because of it pain is subjective it's completely yours so maybe no one else noticed it but for you it was extremely painful and in order not to drop into the pain you try and create this normalization of it this rationalization of why life works this works this way why men are a certain way why women are a certain way human beings usually create between two and three core beliefs they will create millions more but they're usually just accessories of those first ones they stem from a specific place we call it the core belief we also call it the mother belief it has nothing to do with your mom it's just saying like that this is where everything started stemming from um, most people have no idea what their core belief is. Like it takes a while and hard work to start realizing what your core belief is. For me, my core belief is I am weird and I will be rejected. And it's still everywhere. Like I can still see it everywhere. But for my wife knowing, and, and she does know it very well, that that's my core belief and that that's something that my ego will try to re-trigger constantly in different scenarios and in different relationships is extremely important because that's how my wife makes sure that I don't create situations in which I can validate that belief. So understanding your partner's core belief is one of the most important things. But the problem is if your partner is not doing the work and trying to figure out themselves and trying to understand why the work they, why they work the way they do in life, it's not your job to find it and give it to them because if you do it, you just broke the systemic balance in the relationship. This is the reason why I'm not my wife's therapist. Because if I try that, we're not equals anymore. And now I'm above her and I'm smarter and more important than her. She does not have the strength or the power to take care of me. And therefore I will feel lonely and she will feel oppressed even if I'm trying to support her and even if I'm trying to love her and care for her. Only when two people in our relationship are, have been working for decades in their own personal lives or are working together in why the relationship work the, works the way it does, only then do you have like permission and the ability to start using the information about your partner's core belief to protect them, not pointing it out, but actually protecting them without them even noticing? Because if not, they will feel offended and they will feel manipulated like you're doing something because you're being right about who you think they are instead of paying attention to who they are. So I know that my wife's core belief is people are not reliable. I, I know it. Uh, and she, she shared it with me in, in part of the work that she was doing on her own. And I did support in putting some of the pieces together at the very end of it, just saying, maybe it's this, maybe pay attention to this while trying not to be right about it at all. Just presenting, presenting different options to her. Like the huge difference is if I had been with a student, when they tell me, do you think it's this? I go like, yes, but are you sure? And I go like, yes, that's it. Like stop looking like that's it as as a husband there's no way i can do that with my wife like she gets to have her own process and then she gets to present me with i believe this is my core belief can you like protect me from this so my wife is always very attentive for me not putting myself in situations where i will feel weird and rejected because that's very easy for my ego and my job is to make sure that she doesn't create situations in which she feels like people are unreliable and she's alone and she needs to carry the world on her shoulders so is it important? Yes, I believe it's one of the secrets of success in, in personal relationships, especially in romantic relationships. But the tricky part is that you do not get to get involved in their process. You do not get to get involved in them finding out their core belief. Because if you do, you just broke the systemic balance and you will pay the price.
Wow, what an answer. Great it's, you know, that's made me think of is how much of my life I've spent wasted trying to like fight against or change other people's <laughs> core beliefs. Like, you know, if people are like, I think everyone's irresponsible. I'm like, no, they're not. Uh-huh. Like, that's not true. <laughs> and like maybe people I've even dated too. It's like, it's like, I know their core belief is, and I'm just like, I think it's so wrong because it's not my core belief. <laughs> and I've like fully like tried to sway them out of something that is ingrained in their head from as a baby that like, is not gonna, the way mine won't get swayed out by any argument. But it's just so funny because it's like, what? It's a fool's errand. Like, why? Uh, there's no way to like fight against it. And like you said, I th- that's such an interesting point, Rodrigo. That what you need to do is learn about it, know it if you can, and then just like silently use it to help them instead of like trying to engage and shift with them. Does this um, apply to which, parents as well? I'm, I'm like, this is the perfect conversation to have. Like if, if your parents have a core belief, similar thing to not upset the systemic uh, dynamic. Yeah, because if you, if you try to protect your parents from their core belief, first, you already fucked up because that, that means that you're becoming parentalized. That means that you're seeing your parents as weak and you're trying to defend them from how weak and like uneducated they are about themselves and about life and the world. You should never do that. What, but what a, if we've already maybe done that? <laughs> <laughs> Then you go to Hawaii and you stay there without your parents. (laughs) (laughs) Ross is in Hawaii right now. I'm in Hawaii right now. I hate you. Mahalo. Mahalo. Aloha. (laughs) But what I think is interesting is as a parent, this is also very challenging because if you meet, and I I don't don't mean anything about you guys, but uh, what I'm trying to say is the following. If you meet people with parents who are therapists and their parents wanted to kind of shape the the worldview and the beliefs that that kid has by the time that kid is a teenager usually what they make is a bag of tricks like that kid cannot be nailed down they know all the phrases they know all the tricks they will not be surprised by any new psychological angle and they they, they will be impossible to pin down and they usually become cynics Hmm. I don't think that's Brian as much as I think that's me. (laughs) Do you think you're a cynic? I think when it comes to this stuff, I mean, well, I guess I've been open, but I've, I've had to make the decision. Do you think you're more cynical than I am? Yes. You are. Yes. You are way better at letting things go than I am. And if I see something. Oh yes. In that sense. Yes. Yeah. Like you, you, you're, well, I'm just, I was thinking about, letting I was thinking about, I'm, I, I'm more skeptical about things, just like ideas. That's and, not cynicism. I guess you're right. Yeah. That's cynicism skepticism. is cynicism is a little bit of, of, I don't really care. And there's nothing new and people always fail. And no matter how much you oh, try, yeah, the world is remember just like this. why I got the vaccine, right? Because the Taliban <laughs> took back Iraq, uh, Iran in like I was like yeah, what the Taliban <laughs> yeah. in like the, a, a span of two days took it back and I said nothing matters put whatever you want in me and I was like <laughs> world dying you and anyways. I process <laughs> the deductive reasoning yeah, differently was just, I was like nothing matters we spent twenty years over there and in two days they took it back yeah I don't think I've ever said nothing matters that's not really in my system. 
At the same time, you have such another like systemic pattern that we've gone through in in the past, Brian, that has to do with your sister and your whole system and your family. And you found this irony in everything that allowed you to Mm -hmm. kind of still be cynical, but in a really open and caring way, like pointing out things and not bringing more problems to the table. And that that gave you like a little bit of freedom within this pattern. I see. Yeah, it may let me be cynical without, uh, but like putting it in a safe place. Are you talking about like doing comedy and things like that? Like it's like being satirical a, and ironic, but without right. losing your interest in life. Like, with, yeah, without losing your trust in the world. Yeah, it's true because I love like dark, cynical, angry comedians and stuff, but I didn't want to be that at all. So I found a place which was, I guess, in my work to put that so I could still be me. But I had like this like weird little area to go to put my cynicism or whatever into, which was, you know, into my comedic work, which felt like it wasn't me. So I wasn't like able, I wasn't like being a bad boy. I was still kind of like, I was like, oh, that's not me. That's my stuff. Whereas I am still happy and whatever. But then I have this part over here that I could like sequester away. I think I have a perfect way of describing the difference in, in, in you guys' cynicism. Oh, so yeah. okay. if, if, I, if I went with Ross, to see a comedian, a comedian that's extremely cynical and has very dark comedy, by the end of it, if I told Ross, we should really meet this guy, the only reason why Ross would want to meet the guy and have a conversation with that human being is because he wants to help him because everything <laughs> is worthless and like life is going to go to hell if, if we allow people like this to exist. Or he would tell me, I don't even have like an ounce of me that wants to have a conversation with this person. Like, I I don't want to be taken down. Uh, But in your case, Brian, if we went to a show and it was the most dark comedy, by the end of it, you would be dying to have a conversation with a human being to get to know who they are, thinking that that cynicism is just an act and that you can have a humane conversation with them and find out what they were trying to do. I mean, that's right for me. Yeah, that's spot on for me too. But someone you know what you're doing, Rome. I, I so I love Anthony Jeselnik. Like like that. that it's yeah. it's not that's not the type of thing that I'm like. Oh, I don't like this guy. Like I I think Anthony Jeselnik's amazing, and I'd love to meet him. But it's that's because I'm like, I think he's so quick and smart, and I don't find him to be very defeatist. But like Mark Marin, I I would be like I would want to help Mark Marin. I'd be like, come on, man, like. <laughs> We've got so many tools to help you get over this dad shit that you've been battling for decades. <laughs> and it also has a lot to do with the first one being such a cleric. He can pull off that type of comedy in a calm way that seems cynical, but also authentic because he's cleric, isn't he? He's either cleric or melancholic. I think I he's cleric. Heard. If he's the same guy that I'm thinking of, Gentleman? I think he's cleric. Yeah. He's, he's, um, is he the one that speaks very slow and goes like, yeah, 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 yeah. his joke, his whole thing is, is about being offensive, but it's the smartest offensiveness like that I've, I've ever heard. (laughs) Ross, do you find yourself wanting to help people a lot when you see their work or like, you know, you just, even if it's someone you don't know, it's like, ah, it's got, I'm seeing this person on stage. I'd like to, if I got to know them, I'd want to help them. Does that sort of come across? I think like, I don't know how often it's conscious, but it's absolutely, I just, I don't like seeing people in turmoil and pain when it's like, there are ways, there are things. So I, I've seen you. I've seen you meet people and be like so frustrated that like, I just want that. Why don't they know the right way to, I can help them if they just listen. 
It's funny because I don't think this makes me a psychopath, but I don't feel that way at all <laughs> about anyone. If I see like someone on stage who's like losing their mind, I'm like, that's crazy. That's like wild. How interesting. Well, hope they get better. Like I just sort of, I, I never have any personal like want to. I, I mean, help it stems them. from I think a, a bigger underlying belief that I have that it's like a, a, a sick society isn't well until everyone's well, and especially if someone's up on like a huge platform. Like one of the things that really upsets me so much is how in the online influencer community, there is this like huge like lauding and celebration of people with like anxiety disorders. And it's almost like they become these icons who are celebrated for their their distress. And I've seen it happen in some of my cousins. My cousin just changed her Instagram name to something that is, I was about to give it out loud. But <laughs> it's like, let's call it like psychotic, but it's fine. Right. And it's like very much like this thing of like, no. I'm, I'm, Oh, I'm I'm nuts. I'm crazy. I'm unwell, but it's fine. And I, like that to me is so hurtful because it's it's a trend that we're seeing through influencers. Yeah. And that is going to like this whole generation Gen Z, like I see the bigger thing of like, well, yeah, like we're all going to joke about it, but kids are killing themselves and kids are having body image issues. So I'm seeing the ripple effect that it has throughout our whole society. And it's so frustrating. And on the moment to moment basis, we're like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. They're just going through something and going through a phase. But when you look at what's going on within our world, which I, I feel and pay attention to all the time, I think that those are the things that we need to, to shift. And when those people shift and they get well, I think I, I've always said consciousness and wellness is trickle down. And the bummer of it all is that most of like the consciousness influencers are so esoteric. The way they speak mm. is so like, oh, well, yeah, you're like this floofy woo woo, like go, go dance with your crystals and your beads. But we need <laughs> to talk about this stuff in a way where it sounds cool and it sounds interesting. And you look at them, you're like, oh, I want to be like that person. But the things that they're saying are genuinely like working, you know? And yeah. instead of it being an act of mental health or an act of wellness, it really being authentic and seen as cool and seen as well. I actually noticed that connection about that um, because I've been quarantining <laughs> um, I've had time to study certain things and I was going through my notes of, of a lot of things in, in psychology and uh, I don't know if I'm ready to explain this, but here I go. Um, I feel like our generation, specifically our generation, millennials. like not really millennials, but the millennials that were born somewhere in the 80s uh, okay. or, or the beginning of the 90s, what, what they usually call like senials. Like millennials that didn't grow up with technology. We didn't grow up with internet. We didn't grow up with smartphones. We got like, we got that in high school or in college or something like that. But the thing is, because, because we're part of that generation, we understand being progressive and we understand wanting everybody to be okay. And we understand wanting the world to be fair. And we understand not wanting people to suffer. Uh, but there's something very, like philosophically, very dangerous uh, about the far left. And the problem with the far left is that in order to create, uh, uh, Jordan Peterson explains this brilliantly, by the way, but because of our generation, uh, we actually understand being progressive. And most people our age are left wing. Um, and 
that's that's obvious like we don't want people to suffer we don't want anybody to pay the price we don't want anybody to have a horrible life we don't want extreme poverty we don't want people dying of curable disease we don't want this concentrations of of money and power like we get it about it the problem is that our generation both both socially and academically because the truth is that unless you're exposed to very specific types of work and very specific parts of history uh, you don't really understand the tyranny that guy that can come out of the left wing and and on the extreme left where we don't want anybody to suffer we start fighting for for uh, equality of outcome not equality of opportunity but equality of outcome and there's no way to create equality of outcome without creating a tyranny like in order to make sure that everybody gets the same someone will work more and not get their fair share someone will like invent something and not be able to grow because of it no, like no one will try and, and build a new a new business uh that can create wealth for the people involved because that wouldn't be fair for the people that are not able to be a part of that company and that becomes tyranny extremely fast now when it comes to what matters to us like the psychology and coaching of people what happens is that if you keep telling people that who they are is perfect, if you keep telling people that what they're feeling is completely justified by the, the, the victimhood that we understand in the world, and you're feeling like this because people don't allow you to, to get your fair share and people are not treating you as, as any other human, and no one, no one has permission to call you fat and no one has permission to call you ugly, like we see the value of that. But at the same time, when you ask people to do that, then you don't allow the full psychological process of human beings to happen, which is first, all you have is the relationships with your parents as a kid. You're making up your mind. Those are the only real relationships you have. And then after that, you're supposed to go into the world and be part of a tribe. Like you, you, you get to decide who you are, what you like, well, like ranging from the things that you read, the things that you like watching on TV, the types of movies that you identify with, the type of the types of books that you agree with the types of authors that you agree with that allows you to be part of the tribe but then after that there's a there's a third step that's extremely important which is and we've spoken about this in the past which is personal responsibility and personal responsibility is going beyond the tribe it's going beyond your belonging to the tribe and actually understanding who you are as an individual and what you stand for and what you want to change in the world. And that means suffering and that means pain and that means exposing yourself to things that are not pleasant and that are not nice while you're finding yourself, while you're discovering who you want to be as a human being. And when we create this absolutely progressive agenda and just tell people to belong to the tribe and the tribe is going to tell you exactly what's happening and the tribe is going to tell you what's right and what wrong people then just get obsessed with image power fame and money because those are the only indicators that are left once that everything else is up to the tribe until you find your personal responsibility so people just keep saying i don't have enough uh, i should have more fame i should have more money i should be more acknowledged I, I should live in a world that's that's way safer it's group thinking that's exactly right and when you stay in group thinking because that's the safest place to be which is what we're doing with society lately you will never develop your personal responsibility you'll never know who you really are and you will never be able to fight back in the world you'll just get offended and run to your tribe and the problem that Jordan Peterson is always talking about is when do you stop drawing the lines between one tribe and the other 
Like it's it's impossible. We would need to change the whole world because hey, I'm white, but I'm white Mexican, and now now we call them whites again. Uh, like that's that's a thing in Mexico now. And and then beyond that, who the hell am I? And what type of a world do I want to create? So this progressive view ends in tyranny. That's the problem that you can't create like equality of outcome without creating tyranny, and you're not allowing people to develop into their personal responsibility. You know what's interesting is like there's tyranny on both sides. Like that, that the end result of you guys have heard of the horseshoe theory, right? That the far left and the far right are actually closer in the way in which their brain operates than yeah. more center middles, and it, it, it's it, extremes on either side is is insane. But what's in, what's interesting is right now the group that it, like we have a lot of um, what's it called trial by uh, uh, I forget the exact term for it but it's like trial by Twitter right like you know yeah. someone like gets gets roasted canceled whatever it is just by public opinion uh, without any evidence or anything like that and and the the internet tends to very much lean towards the victim mentality and supporting yeah. any sort of victim. But also there, there's so much information and everything is hearsay at this point. And we're in like this court of hearsay. Uh, and, but it's also like, we don't live in a world where you can have like a fair trial regarding some of this stuff because it's a lot of he said, she said. Um, and that's why I've always leaned towards, we need to have a lot more support for, um, with like, like, you know, good mental health support. Um, for recovery for helping people like instead of saying we're going to banish you i think that it needs to have more of a conversation of redemption of rehabilitation um, for people to understand what they've done why they did it the things underneath the behaviors that are are seen as harmful um etc etc um, but a lot but of people is, are very quick to jump to, oh, this yes. person's offended. I'm I'm on their side because I don't want to see anyone get hurt. And as yep. a phlegmatic, I get the inclination to go and jump. Let me console you. But a lot of it is just like, and Brian, we've talked about this, is how the initial instinct is just to kind of like, yes, the person's problem because you you care about them and want to be there for them. But the harder thing is asking, you know, well, what did you what did I you mean, do to create this? This is something that's happening. I, I feel this way with comedy a lot, especially in the last few years where it's like the idea of people being like, the thing that person said really offended someone, really offended me. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the past I'd be like, that sucks. And now my answer is to that is almost like, okay, well, that's your problem. <laughs> I, not, it's not really my answer. And I don't say that to people when they say it. But a lot of the times I'm just sort of like, and it helps that person. So yeah. what are you supposed to do with that? You know, like it's one of those things where you can't, it, it, I, you can't look at it so objectively because certain things, certain people like being spoken to in harsh ways and it helps them understand themselves. And I like that with my, that, I've learned the most when people have, have spoken about ideas to me that kind of like were perhaps perceived by others as a bit offensive. To me, that's how I learned and Im- imbued it into my system where someone else is like, that's not okay. But then if it's okay for someone else and not for someone else, what are you supposed to do with that? There is no objective truth to how you what we, what we need to have 
what we need to have as an objective truth and the connection that we need people to make is that even though we're doing something progressive that seems to be there to support someone and help someone, that's the beginning of creating a tyranny. And I know that it's hard to see because we've never been exposed to this. We've never seen it. But until people make a connection between what's happening in Venezuela and left wing, how that's the end of, of a left-wing tyran tyrannic system, uh, that th they won't get it. The problem is when you want to guarantee equality of outcome, you need to create a tyranny. That's how it works. Yeah, but the United States is so far from the left wing. Like, I remember I went to Germany years not, ago. Not really? Oh, yeah, very much so. I went to Germany years ago, and people that grew up on either side of the Berlin Wall said that our Democrats, our our left-leaning party is actually fairly conservative. And I oh, said, well, yes. what would you call our Republicans? And they said Nazis. And this was in 2015, and I laughed. And now, yeah, so, so Bibi, one of our, our patrons, is in Germany right now. So our, even our left is still very right by the world standards. One, 100% when it comes to your political system. But the yes. problem with the states right now is not the political system. It's society. It's both. Because, because right now, there, there's, like, I, I've done a lot of reading about this. We have something in place called Citizens United, which allows corporations to funnel unlimited amounts of money into the pockets of politicians. Because it's so, freedom of speech, according to the U.S. Which is, which is bonkers. It's insane. Mm -hmm. So people have no representation, but corporations do. And, yep. and our, our media is just like completely bonkers and out of line. So like they, it is for, for right now, in my opinion, the problem in the United States is a hybrid of two separate things. Our government is completely bonkers and hardwired by corporate dollars. <laughs> yes. And our society of the emotional society is being governed by the emotional uh, ebbs and flows of whatever their people are taking in on social media. So it, it's like we are both structurally decimated as well as emotionally decimated, but from two different things. And, and it's weird because, and I take this very personally, I cannot believe that you have a president that can like stand before the nation and lie and say things like, I mean, lie in the way that he does, like, and say things like General Motors is leading the transformation to electrical oh, vehicles. It, yeah. We, what? We've, had, we've what? put a lie in office since Nixon, probably before. Yeah. But yeah. but there's no it's the great American pastime. Yeah, there's no president consequences. Lied. We've seen it's been a slippery slope, but we've fallen so far that it's there are no consequences for people that do wrong in office. Like, do you know that that um, Congress people can still trade stocks that they have yeah. the ability to influence with their policies? Someone was just publishing the amount of money that, that the most important Congress people have done in the yeah, stock market they, lately, and they're around $200 and $500 million each. Yeah, there, uh, there are people that made so much money just following what Nancy Pelosi's husband was doing. Like, yeah. just like We're just going to trade whatever he does. It, our, our system is so freaking corrupt right now. It's insane. And, uh, you know, I, it scares me to think about when I look at this because it's like, Like, yeah, socially, I, I, I definitely fall more liberally, a thousand percent. But then I look and I feel like maybe there are like three people of integrity in Congress and they are just <laughs> getting steamrolled. Um, anyway, it's going to be a very interesting This, year for us. But I want to get to, to some more of the, the listener yeah. questions. I, I, don't, I yeah. have one more thing to add to that. Just talking about the idea of like groupthink and everything, because like, I do think that like, it's very hard to 
say like, okay, I'm on this side. And then when there's a good idea on the other side to even put your toe in and be like, yeah, I'm mostly here, but I actually really like this idea over here. It's a really hard thing for most people to do. And something I was just thinking about for the first time when you were talking about how we, when things are taken away, we start like worshiping like money and fame and power and all that stuff is I do think like I'm, I've been on the left my whole life. Everyone I know is on the left. Mm -hmm. That being said, I do think that the left has an insane obsession with fame in a way I haven't seen my like extended family members or people I know back from Georgia on the right. Like the obsession with like self congratulatory yeah. fame seems to be very like much more on the left. And it's not, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's the right way to be. I do think that like the people who I know on the right who are much more like family focused and don't care about this stuff, part of me is like, we can learn something from that big time because that's, I don't know, it just seems. That's exactly what I meant when I said like progressive thinking creates tribe. And once you're part of the tribe without creating personal responsibility is a responsibility you want to stick out somehow. Like mm -hmm. you, you literally want to find a way, sorry. I got a call and, and it blocked my Instagram, but um, it the only way to the, the only way to show yourself somehow when you're within the tribe and not creating personal responsibility is through fame, fame, power, and money. Yeah. So the yeah. left the left wing is obsessing with that, even though the content of what they're saying is something that we can all agree with. But the psychological problems that we create in the people involved in that movement is massive. Because not only not only do they get obsessed with that, but they can also be even meaner than what they're fighting against. And it's just like the end justifies the means. Yeah. All right. Um, I feel like we should probably have some sort of like a political expert on the podcast at a certain yeah, point. We, we're really we're really, good one. We've we've avoided you, politics for the most part. How are you a political expert? What makes you an expert? Well, the person I'm thinking of is actually Robert Reich. Like, I would like to see if we could get him on because he's been a part of different administrations and he's, he's definitely a commentator of sorts. And he's the one that I feel like is most active on social media that we would even have a shot of getting on. But that would be very interesting. Um, okay, next question. Uh, this one comes from Igor. He says, uh, since phlegmatic... But when uh, phlegmatic is unbalanced, they tend towards depression. How do you help them to cope with that? And then he also wants to know how to deal with the difference of sex, the difference sex drives in couples. Oh, okay. Those are two very different questions. Yeah, yeah, so, but the same comment. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so first, um, a phlegmatic gets sad and eventually depressed when they feel like who they're being towards the world and how they're supporting the people around them and their relationships are failing. So when they feel like something they did for someone else wasn't taken the right way and it was seen as, as manipulation or control or aggression, like all you need to do is stand before a phlegmatic that loves you and tell them, I've been paying attention and I think you've been manipulating me for the last 10 years. If you just say something like that, you're literally going to watch a phlegmatic heart get cold, freezing, not idea what to do, afraid of taking any steps, like really considering that maybe something's really wrong with them. And they need to have two things in order to get out of that. One, a clear emotional outlet. They need to know how to deal with their emotions. They need to be able to be frustrated and vocal about it, sad and vocal about it. like. 
if they're a phlegmatic that, are, that is trying to be perfect, they will get depressed. If they don't want anybody to realize what they're going through, they will get depressed. So they need an emotional outlet and they need to be vocal about what they're experiencing. That's why we're always telling phlegmatics, you need to also find people that will be there for you. Because if not, you'll always be there for other people and that feels amazing for a while. But once you feel like you made a mistake or you don't know how to, to support someone and what you did was maybe more hurtful if you don't have an outlet and if you don't have a way of being vocal about how you feel and people that you trust for it you will collapse into yourself and get go into like a deep depression is this pure phlegmatic or fake virus as well fake virus as well but but this happens way more to true phlegmatics um now uh having said that the difference in sex drives that's a very complex topic. So let's put it this way, because here gender matters, like relationship status matters. Uh, so let's put it this way. There are biotypes that, that are more horny. That's just how it works. And it's sanguines and phlegmatics. That's why we always say that phlegmatics are the dirtiest in bed, that, that you would never guess the things that phlegmatics are willing to do in the bedroom, especially because they all, they all look like really nice and they never seem like they would kill a, kill a fly or anything like that. But once a phlegmatic is into someone... <laughs> <laughs> I'm reading that. Didier is like, geez, bro, lower your voice. <laughs> also, can I say, like, melancholics, we're horny too. Come on, let us in the club. I mean, <laughs> you are horny, but not in a physical way. You're you're horny in a mental way. That's why that's why for melancholics, it's all about the plays where you're doing it. That that it's dangerous or weird somehow. Role playing, pretending like I'm something else. Like I don't know, making out on the streets of New York. Like things like that are extremely excited to exciting to melancholics but it's Isn't not so physical everyone? the streets of new york that's not physical no i guess it's ideological like we're here on the streets oh yeah yeah i do okay and that turns what? melancholics on like crazy but yeah. sanguines are the ones with the most <laughs> sanguines are the ones with the most testosterone so they usually tend to be like really horny both men and women and phlegmatics when they feel the, that emotional connection they're like do whatever you want to me because that's that's usually where they go and if you saw ross's face as i that's said that you know what i'm talking time. about yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's out of nowhere to do, brian um, <laughs> do what i want yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now the next problem that we face is very gender-based so I don't want to get in trouble for saying this, but here it goes. So Maybe don't. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's true, but it has to do... I mean, it's not really completely gender-based because, well, again, say, this can, is... Can we, can we talk about it in a way that's maybe framed... Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. already on it. <laughs> okay, good, good. So it's, it's, actually, it's actually a lot about how masculine and how feminine you are. Usually feminine human beings... Once they find someone that they're attracted to and that they love, they can keep that that like physical attraction and that and that romantic attraction to, towards this person in particular for a long time. Feminine human beings can do that in a brilliant way. Masculine human beings usually feel extremely attracted to what they don't have, and once they have it, it stops being shiny and new. So they they want to find someone else like it, it's there's even a there's even a spanish poet that that says this um he says um 
there is only one thing needed for me to feel extremely attracted to someone. And they asked him what? And, and he said, it, it cannot be my wife. <laughs> oh my God. And when his wife was asking, what does she have that I don't? He said, you're way better than her, but she's not you. Oi, that was that guy sanguine? Say. What? Was that guy sanguine? No, melancholic. No Promoting way. personality. Okay. I, I understand it. I get it. And the really funny thing about this is that it has to do with what we value about ourselves, how masculine energy wants to conquer and create and find new and, and spread who they are, like spread the seed is something that we're biologically made for. And, and then the other side, the feminine side of, of energy wants to take care of the things they already have. That's why very feminine men are many times the best husbands, even though yeah. like usually we suffer because they're not strong enough when they, we need, when we need them to be like outrageously strong, but they will be committed. They're and, loyal. And I, was, exactly. I was just they're thinking loyal. about that, like a, flim, a, a true phlegmatic male partner or masculine partner or whatever it is. The if you're looking for loyalty, that's where it lives. Because if, if I, I'll just speak for me, if I step out, even in my mind, there's a guilt that rides through my body. It's bonkers. So it's like yep. the, the, it's, it's just basic. Like we, we go towards pleasure and avoid pain, doing something that could affect our partners negatively creates physical pain within my body. So I avoid it like the plague. Yep. I'm not like that as much as you, Ross. That's for sure. Because oh, you're yeah. not as feminine as he is. You don't, you don't feel, I, I've noticed this about you because like, if I went as long as you have without reading a script that you sent me, it would. Oh, right. I got to read that. Yeah, yeah. It would, I would, <laughs> I would be reminding myself, I'd be like, oh my God, that thing about Brian and I feel pangs of guilt throughout my body. And that's what would motivate me to take action on it. And just to answer Nicole on, on Instagram, yes, fire waters are extremely masculine. All right. Great question. Uh, let's, oh, one, yeah. one last thing that I wanted to say, and this is gender based and this is very interesting. Nature played a horrible trick on us. Is it a sex based or trick. gender based? Because people are going to say gender Both. is a construct. Okay. No, what I, what, what I, what I mean is this like sex based, if you want to not, okay. not gender, like sex based and the good distinction. And the interesting thing about this is that our peak sexuality happens in a very different moment. And that's horrible. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> it's such <laughs> it's... a trap of the world. Like nature, God, whatever you want to call it, played this fast trick on us and we've been doing it wrong. Older men should not marry younger women. Like older women should marry younger men. I've been saying it. I've been screaming it since anyone who knows me well. I have been. Uh, this is. I like this, this game. This is the hill I like that where Brian we're going here. Is willing to die I've, on. Yes. <laughs> I older women. The, yes. Because the statistically, women peak in their sexuality in their late thirties, early forties, and men peak in their sexuality in their mid twenties, early thirties. So that means that when we meet at 35, now she finally wants to explore her sexuality in crazy ways and experience her sexuality and feel it in her body and experiment. And, and now she has this crazy <laughs> sex drive and men don't. 
It's actually, I'm 35 now, and I've just noticed for the first time, I can like do things. I can think about, I can read a book. Yeah. Like I don't, (laughs) without getting horny every three pages. It's (laughs) amazing. I like, I'm starting to be like proactive in my life. Like it's, I'm kind of glad that this like testosterone dip has started happening. Oh, I feel like a human being now. I've noticed that in me, like from 35, 36, exactly the same thing. Right after that, my sex drive and my ability to go on doing stuff without ever stopping to think about sex completely shifted. And I felt the exact same thing that you did. Like, oh my God, had I been like this from 20, I would have (laughs) been the most productive human being in the world. I think that's why, because I remember like when I was like 21, I was like, why do people's careers like, like, not really start to their thirties. And it's like, I had, I had no chance. I had no chance <laughs> at all in my twenties of getting anything. Dude, the mistakes that we make out of sex drive as young men is the stupidest thing. The stupidest thing. Yes. And women see us as, as what the, what the hell is wrong with this guy? Like women our age are like, what, what's happening to this human being? Weren't they brilliant? How are they like destroying everything right now? And, and when women react like that, I usually tell them, oh, give it 10 years and you'll see what you start yeah. doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, That's why we have cookers now. All right. Let's, the great question. Um, <laughs> Ross is like, <laughs> ready to stop talking about this. <laughs> well, we've got 30 minutes left, and I, I had this one saved for last for sure, but this is going to be behind the patron wall. I'm going to ask the question first and then go ahead and put up that wall for folks. And for those of you watching on Instagram, uh, head over to patreon.com slash RGP development, and you could join us over there. Uh, we are still live as you are watching this. Uh, so if you want to come hear the answer to this, that's the way to do it. Patreon.com slash RGP development. This question comes from Tiffany. Uh, on the topic of hiring and building a team, what biotype and personality would be a good fit? She's an analyzing phlegmatic managing a team that has a supporting Mel and another analyzing phlegmatic. We previously had an analyzing choleric on the team, and it was difficult balancing the team dynamic during group discussions because he was much more dominant than the rest of us, regardless of his analyzing personality. I had to step up and overpower, in quotes, to manage the flow of energy between the teammates. The choleric has since left the company on good terms, and they get to hire someone new to replace them. So let's talk a little bit about biotypes and team building and what roles you might want to fill with what biotypes. And if that interests you guys, head over to patreon.com slash RGP development and join the conversation there. We'll see you guys next week. We love you guys. See you soon. Bye. Au revoir. Want more biotypical? Well, good news. There's a longer version of this episode available at patreon.com slash RGP development. There, you'll also be able to find ways to get on the podcast yourself, ask questions, as well as watch a live taping remotely. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast and subscribing. Remember to rate this five stars wherever you're listening to it, and we'll see you next time.